Hello, and welcome to this podcast presented by the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. But first, a little bit about our talks this evening and uh, next week. Uh, Doug Sanders will speak tonight at 7 p.m. at the U of L First Choice Savings Center, and his topic is "Lessons from the Arrival City: The Future of Poverty, Population, and Environment in the Urban Landing Pad." Uh, Doug is chief of the Globe and Mail's London-based European Bureau, and I. Uh, gather from the announcement that he'll be talking about uh, recent migrations of people and changing conditions as a result. Uh, next week, we have uh, Dr. Dwayne Bratt, Chair of the Department of Policy Studies at Mount Royal University. He'll speak to Canada's democratic deficit. Is it systemic and can it be fixed? Now, more info on these talks can be found on SACPA's website, where you can also hear the audio of past sessions and participate in online commentary. There's a suggestion box outside the door here. You can contribute your idea for speakers or any other aspect of SACPA that you wish. Today, we're learning about technology to take carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and use it to improve soil. Our speaker is Dr. Anthony Anya, and I'll ask him to come back to uh, entertain questions. Now, please come to the microphone. Remember to state your name for the record. Keep your comments brief and your questions succinct, and please just one or at most two at a time. The moderator is getting too old to keep track of them. And uh, no questions from the floor as we are recording them for the SACPA website. So, I see we have the first questioner at the mic. Hi, Dr. Anya. My name is Henning Mundel, and I'm one of at least four retired scientists from the research station here at Lethbridge. Excellent. I'm a, I'm a plant scientist. And... Uh, the main question I was going to ask you, I'm not going to ask you because you indicated that the information is not available, and that's about the economics. Okay. <laughs> I'm glad. So now I'm going to ask you a, a simpler one. On your list of uh, positive factors of using biochar, yep. you mentioned about the uh, influence on pH, and then you went to an example from Brazil. Yep. My question is, Brazil have acidic oils, for the ameliorating there, you need to raise the pH. Here in southern Alberta, with pH is over 8, to ameliorate, we'd want to lower the pH. So what is, what is the impact of biochar on pH? <clears throat> Very good question. I uh, hope you have an answer. Yes, absolutely, yes. You <laughs> will get an answer. One thing that I didn't uh, uh, talk about in my presentation is the pH of biochar that you get is substrate-dependent. So depending on the substrate or the biomass that you use in making your biochar, you can actually tailor the biochar for the type of soil that you want to remediate or you want to amend or, or change the pH. For example, if uh, uh, you make 
biochar out of chicken litter. You tend to get very, very high pH because the ash content of ch chicken litter is high. So the ash content contributes to the uh, elevated pH. So if you were dealing with acidic soils and you wanted to remediate uh, uh, those kind of soils, then, of course, the recommendation would be to pick chicken litter. Some forest residues tend to create lower pH because of the high lignin content. So if you make it, uh, the pH tend to be lower, and uh, it's way lower than uh, the neutral uh, levels of pH. I'm not really sure whether you'll be able to uh, get very, very low pH biochar that uh, 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 would bring down highly uh, uh, alkaline soils to the level that you'll be looking for. You, you will likely have to use tons and tons of biochar to be able to get it. But the simple answer is depends on the, on the feedstock. We do have a questioner coming, or I was going to butt in. My name is Mark Gettle. I just wonder if you could let us know what the difference or the relationships are between charcoal, activated charcoal, coal, and biochar. They're all sort of quite closely related, aren't they? Yes, they are. But what are the differences and what are the relationships? Okay. So I'll, I'll start from the simple one. Charcoal, biochar. At the beginning, I said... Frankly speaking, there is no big difference between charcoal and biochar. If you use, uh, I think uh, the separation line is the end use. If you make charcoal and you use it for fuel purposes, then of course it remains charcoal. If you make charcoal and you use it for agronomic, soil amendment, or other environmental purposes, then of, of course it becomes biochar because we want to separate, separate it. So uh, the definition of biochar is something that has sort of gone discussion internationally. And uh, the recent, uh, the one I'm talking about now is the recent uh, agreement with the International Biochar Initiative, which is uh, uh, an organization, global organization, looking at biochar use. So their definition is it has to be biochar when it's made and put back in the soil. That's what makes it biochar. <clears throat> in terms of coal, yeah, that one is a bit tricky and also a bit more difficult for me to address. But I would say that uh, uh, in, the pro in the process of making biochar, if you actually move it through that gradient, you can actually get closer to a coal-like product. But of course, coal is something that comes out of biomass that's settled over, I don't know, you know, thousands, millions of years in soil. So... Sorry, I can't really tell you the difference between charcoal and coal. Uh, my name is Van Christou. Thank you very much for an illuminating address. Um, there's been so much talk about the excessive amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and the negative effects it's having climatically on our, on our Earth. Um, one of the things, however, that's not said is that uh, as carbon dioxide increases, it feeds plants. Yeah. Uh, if uh, carbon dioxide indeed is being taken out in the biochar production, uh, where is the balance between the amount of harm, uh, the good it's doing the soil or the amount of harm it's doing and not feeding the plants? <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's also a very, very interesting question. And I think uh, there is general agreement that we 
probably already have higher level of CO2 in the atmosphere than we can actually tolerate. So uh, uh, by using biochar, instead of, if, okay, let, let me also address it this way. We are encouraging bioenergy production. If you use bioenergy, you are only displacing hydrocarbon fuels. So you get, you get carbon neutral systems. But because the level is already very high and you are finding that temperature is already getting very high, biochar, by contrast, can help bring those le that level lower. And because we can't stop increasing the concentration of CO2 that we put in the atmosphere, just the same a, a, a way that we are trying to encourage CCS so that we capture, uh, 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 capture the carbon and pump it underground, biochar creates an opportunity to do the same thing. Because the level is going to increase, we are not projecting CO2 emission to get lower. Because it's going to be increasing, we want to be sure that we are, we are creating technology to at least help maintain a certain level of it. That's where biochar comes in. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. <clears throat> Graham Greenlee is my name. When the biochar is produced, I'm, I'm wondering what form it's in. Is it huge chunks or a particulate? And when you apply it to the soil, is it just applied to the surface, or does it have to be incorporated? Yeah. Depends, depends on uh, the technology that you are using to produce biochar. You can have chunks, and you can have particulates. Most of uh, the... Most of the larger-scale production capacity tend to create particulate, fine matter, and uh, this creates another form of problem because when you try to apply that, you can have dust creating problem. You can have losses coming out of it. So to use that kind of biochar that comes in the particulate matter, what uh, we, uh, we are currently experimenting with is pelletizing it, making it in form of fertilizer, so that you can use the same form of equipment that you use in applying fertilizer to apply it. And also because you don't want to uh, have losses of it, if you apply it surface applied and you have wind erosion, it can be blown away. It's encouraged to be worked in, in the soil. So subsoil working the same way you, you regularly work a, a fertilizer into your soil if it's a solid fertilizer. Oh, sorry, you have a follow-up question? Okay. Uh, thanks for your presentation. My name is Jim Moyer, and I've got a question. It's sort of related to economics, but you're talking about the solanetic soils and ameliorating them. And if I have it right, you had a ratio of one to one. Yes. And uh, if you take a, a hectare of soil, there's a million kilograms of soil to the in the zero to 15 centimeter layer. Yeah. So, that, so I can see using this in a greenhouse, but in the field, that would be sort of outrageous. And the same de deactivating herbicides, the ratio is much less of what you would need. I used to know this, but it's something like 0.1 to 1%. So you're still taking tons and tons of, of it, and it would have to be thoroughly mixed to deactivate the herbicide because it would be spread through the you know, top 6 centimeters, 15 centimeters of soil at least. So there's... A lot of uh, practical problems. I just wanted to comment on that. 
You are absolutely correct. <laughs> so I can't argue with you on that. If you, if you notice in my presentation, what I tried to do uh, was to focus more on those applications that will not encounter the kind of problems that you are talking about. I agree. Uh, the solenistic soil, uh, one thing that I didn't tell you in the high uh, productivity that you were seeing was that that was estimated at about 60 tons of biochar and hectare to get the, the effects that you are getting. So I agree with you. I, I don't see how you will be able to get the amount of biomass to be able to put in your land and the logistics for doing it is also going to be a nightmare. So it has to be uh, 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 your own estimation of the economics, what you think, the value you think you'll be able to get out of your land to do that. But if you have in your land a portion of it that has been mined, oil was extracted from it, and you need to, you need to bring it back to productivity, typically it's usually about one kilometer radius that you have. Is it one kilometer? Am I right about that? Then you will be able to make biochar to put within that limited space that you have because you really have a true need to do it. So you still have to do the economics. And uh, one other thing that I didn't talk about is the potential that uh, if uh, the uh, carbon sequestration potential of biochar is fully demonstrated, that putting biochar in your soil, you will be able to collect some carbon credits to offset some of uh, the cost of your doing it. And because, because you only need to do it one year, you are not going to be repeating it, so you will probably need to, you know, put that investment at the beginning, and then you reap the benefits for many years to come. So the first year, your return on investment may not be there, but by the time you uh, spread that investment over several years, then, of course, maybe, you know, the economics will be there, as well as the environmental benefits. But I agree with you. Doing it on a large scale, especially if you have to do it on solenistic soil, it could be a little bit problematic. On the herbicide side, too, if you also notice, in my uh, last slides on that, I was focusing on the feed filter media. Because if you spray, say, for example, you grow 100 uh, uh, or 1,000 acres of land that you have herbicide residue, the chances are that you will probably not be able to afford the cost of putting biochar in all of it. So you probably still have to, you know, keep it in rotation, let that herbicide by itself just go out. But if you were taking that soil and using it in your greenhouse crops and you are burning out your crops, putting biochar would create some solution. And also using it in filtration media also creates some benefits. So you get to choose the kind of business you want to do with biochar. Bev Mendel-Atherstone, thank you very much for your talk. Thank you, Mark. Uh, this is another question about economic nightmares. <clears throat> and thanks to Jim Moyer for asking the question before me about the solenit soil. Um, I've noticed that many of the houses in Lethbridge uh, have cracks in the walls oh. because of the solenit soil uh, shrinking and then increasing in size, depending on whether we're having drought or lots of rain. So, although this, I'm sure you can... <laughs> I'm sure I know the answer <laughs> from your previous answer. But wouldn't it be possible to put the biomass into the soil <clears throat> around the foundation of the house before the houses were built 
in order to ameliorate this tremendous cracking that we see in our houses in Lethbridge. That's very interesting. <laughs> Maybe that's just another business opportunity. I haven't actually thought of that before. Uh, <laughs> no, I, no, I wouldn't. <laughs> I wouldn't know. But I think it's uh, uh, somebody should probably take it up and look at uh, the uh, look at uh, the uh, the benefits, cost benefit ratio for doing that, doing that, and see if it's actually going to create. One thing that I do know that is, if you put biochar, the water can penetrate a bit more. So uh, the swelling and shrinking is mitigated or minimized. So maybe there will be some opportunities there. My name is Mary Shillington. Uh, we're going to take it down to smaller uh, picture. Uh, a couple of us are, are plant growers. And, oh. and uh, so we weren't sure from your answer um, uh, about charcoal uh, because the, one of the other women at the table had heard that if if you crush some pieces of charcoal and put it in the bottom of your pot, if your soil had gone uh, rancid, it would improve it. And, and, and it, so is this a kind of biochar, or what should we be, would there be a biochar available to buy somewhere that we could, those of us who grow pots, plants in pots, could, could uh, uh, purchase this kind of thing? If you if you take charcoal and you crush it, I guess you know people will sell it to you as biochar. In my presentation, I also talked about quality. Not all biochars are created equal. We have seen evidence of uh, people taking exactly what you talk about and uh, taking anything that looks dark that comes uh, comes out of their process and they call it biochar. So part of the biochar program is to help. Uh, address those kind of issues so that uh, uh, you don't put it there, and if it doesn't work, then you say biochar doesn't work. So what I would say, if you have that kind of biochar, we want to be sure that the biochar is actually biochar, that it was fully paralyzed, that you are actually not putting some volatile matter in your plants uh, that can potentially have some some carcinogenic substances that if, if it gets into your food, as I mean, you were using it to grow food, that's going to cause problems for somebody. So as part of our program, we are creating uh, opportunities for, for, uh, for people to have their biochar tested so that we can actually say it's biochar. And within the International Biochar Initiative, you, you have guidelines that they've created to actually tell us what biochar is and what biochar is not. Buying of biochar, I'm not sure that uh, within here in Canada now that you, you have an uh, open market where you can actually buy biochar. Most of uh, the clients uh, that we've been seeing, they buy biochar from the United States because biochar seems a bit more developed there. So you have uh, small producers that produce biochar and they market it, they will ship it to you. Within the biochar program, my prediction is that in the next couple of years, you will be able to see small samples of biochar to buy because uh, 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 entrepreneurs and small businesses are beginning to come up now, and I think there is one coming up in High River very soon where they will be making biochar out of uh, manure, and I think uh, they will be able to make it available for people to purchase in open markets. I'm, my name is Joseph Natuck. A very quick question regarding the life cycle, uh, in other words, the effectiveness. <clears throat> do you have to do this annually to get the effect, or how long, how many years, or 
uh, you know, effective. Uh, how, how many years will it be effective? In other words, if, you, if I do it this year or this next spring, how many years before it becomes, uh, you know, ineffective? In other words. I mean, it's not, you know, you have to do it annually. Yeah, yeah. The way I would answer that is, first, we don't know because we haven't done extensively here. But one thing that I do know is uh, the terra preta Amazonian soils that I talked about. You find that uh, the char that uh, you find in that system probably got there thousands of years ago. And probably because of the volume of that uh, 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 char that they used at that time is still there. So it's still productive to date. Uh, but if you put, I've, I've also seen some reports that said if you put uh, some small amount of biochar in soil that really didn't really get any effects there, that you can actually have that biochar disappear from the soil with time. So it depends, you know, I, I would speculate that it depends on how much you put at the beginning. And, uh, and uh, another factors I would probably do not currently know. The experiment that I presented, we put biochar there three years ago, and we are still seeing the effect of that biochar to date. We tend to keep monitoring that so that we'll be able to better address these kind of questions in the future. Uh, point of order, Mr. Chairman. Uh, I'm a, I am a retired soil scientist. I spent most of my career actually classifying soils throughout most of Alberta and especially in southern Alberta. I would just like to point out to Bev that there are no solenetic soils in Lethbridge. Okay. But anyway, that's not my question. <laughs> uh, you mentioned the need to incorporate biochar, and so I, I'm wondering how it works with no-till farming systems that are being adopted more and more by farmers today, and especially in southern Alberta. Good question, and my simple answer is, don't know. Maybe you can, maybe you can help me, maybe we can have a conversation. I, I'm not a soil scientist, I'm a plant scientist, but I do work uh, with uh, several soil scientists and uh, no, I don't know. I don't know how you can incorporate it and because that's exactly one of the law of unintended consequence. Because if you plow it, you already store carbon in that soil. That's the reason you practice the no-till. And if you end up to work biochar in, you may end up losing those benefits that you've already achieved. So maybe the simple answer is if you already have a very good system for no-till, don't work biochar in. Don't put biochar Unless that soil is not very productive for you, if the soil is not productive for you and you think that biochar is going to, you know, make it more productive, it becomes a give and take. You know, the cost benefit of uh, putting biochar is the CO2 that you are going to lose from the no-till system. My name is Frances Schultz. Um, one, of, one of the things I was wondering about, because... Uh, we have other areas of marginal land in Alberta, and I was wondering if you had done any work on the gray-wooded soils, whether it has any effect there in our gray-wooded area of Alberta. No, uh, we, haven't, uh, we haven't actually done extensive field trials because uh, biochar was not available. 
So I think now that uh, we've uh, gotten uh, uh, some capacity to make biochar, we are likely going to be seeing some of those various areas being tested. And actually, we are with uh, colleagues at the University of Alberta. They are already testing uh, biochar for some of those zones that you are talking about anyway. And also uh, the uh, Borea Forest region, they are also looking at activities there. But to date, we haven't, we haven't done anything in those zones. Hi, my name is uh, Knut Peterson. Thanks for your presentation. Uh, do you see any relationship between anabolic uh, digesters and biochar? And uh, is there any uh, way that that can work together? Sorry, I didn't get the digesters that you're talking about. Anabolic digesters is... Ah. So Are this, you familiar uh, with that, what that is? Anaerobic, anaerobic digesters yeah. for biogas production? Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, I wouldn't see any, any link between them. I, I'm not sure there will be any connection, unless uh, 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 you probably want to, you know, help me understand why you think there might be a, co a connection. I think uh, the digesters simply convert, bio, uh, convert biomass uh, to, uh, to biogas. So uh, the kind of heat that we use in the pyrolysis, I don't think uh, we get anywhere close uh, to that in uh, digesters. The leftovers, yeah, that the dig okay, yeah, the solids that come out of it. The leftovers, the solid that comes out of it, you can you can you can use it directly as soil amendments, unless uh, you want to further stabilize the carbon. I don't see any reason why you will be taking that and putting through uh, through uh, to biochar production, unless it becomes an issue, and you want to use the biochar system as a waste management for that process. I would say for now it's like your compost, and if you make a compost, you already spend time and money making it. So why would you want to put it through a biochar reactor? So do I see benefit of taking some of those di uh, 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 solids that come out of your digester for biogas production and mixing them with biochar to create another product innovation? Absolutely. People are already looking into those kind of products taking uh, things like uh, compost and mixing it with biochar to create further benefits with the compost. So maybe that's where that might come from. Am I allowed another comment, Dwayne? Absolutely. Sure. <laughs> Sorry. On the matter of uh, no-till farming, okay. I believe uh, modern seed drills have um, sort of special discs to cut through the trash so that the seed can be placed into the soil at the time of seeding. So perhaps the, the uh, biochar could be added in particulate form at the time of seeding and mm -hmm. placed into the top one or two centimeters of soil. Oh. Yeah, that would be innovative. So I, I'm actually taking that one down so we can test it in the review. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I, I see we still have... a few minutes here and no questioner. So I'm wondering, Anthony, if you could tell us a little bit more about the formation of that terra preta and the legends of El Dorado and so on that are presumably linked to it. <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah, this is, uh, this is the story as I understand it, and I know that when you also probably know this story <laughs> better than I do anyway, the the uh, uh, the Amazonians, yeah, the native uh, Indians that live there, or the uh, 
the indigenous people that lived there many years ago. They took their waste biomass, bones from their, from their meat, shell, fish, bones, everything, name it. And I think it's probably the same way we, uh, we do uh, our backyard trash dump. Like in Africa, we have those pits where we put our rubbish, and once in a while you set it on fire. So I, I think they probably did this not because it's set up to do experiments or they knew that they were creating biochar. It was a form of waste management. That's what I would think there. And in the process of doing that, they were helping the soil to improve its productivity. And I think uh, once they noticed that, you know, where they had, you know, created that kind of environment, crops were growing there, they probably did more of it and did more of it and did more of it. Because you go there, I've never been there myself anyway, I've read the literature, you go there, you see these patches that tend to be very, very rich and dark. And then, of course, you know, just not far away, you see other regions, you know, where they don't have those kind of uh, uh, soils. So I think it's something that, you know, just came to them by chance, and uh, then they did more of it. And we found now that in, even in other cultures, you are beginning to see some of that. In Australia, they've also found some evidence of that. Even here within the prairies, forest fire probably also accomplished the same thing because uh, some, uh, some colleagues have also looked at uh, uh, char residue in some of our prairie soils, and they are finding that uh, those soils tend to be very, very rich in char also. So forest fire itself used to do that, uh, do that in nature for us too. Did I capture that? Yes, I think you did. <laughs> okay. And you co-opted my next uh, question, but uh, we are getting pretty short on time. Uh, I don't know whether there are any more questions or not. We could entertain one more. <laughs> could I ask one more? Um, how can you tell the difference when you the char in our soils and organic matter, some oh. of that which is also thousands or thousands of years old? Yeah, they have uh, they have uh, special uh, techniques or technologies that they use in doing it, and one of it is the one that I mentioned. They use uh, the carbon dating, the NMR. Uh, see uh, carbon carbon thirteen dating, and they also use uh, the scanning electron microscope to do. So they have uh, various uh, highly sensitive lab equipment that soil scientists. I'm sure that you know <laughs> our soil scientists will probably be able to you know say more about that. But these guys they have uh, they have uh, highly sensitive equipment that they use, and in Cornell University, uh, Dr. Lehman and his group they've perfected ways of doing that. Not me, but you know those guys. They have those. They have techniques for doing it. No. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. Thank you Anthony. very much, sir. Yeah. Thank you.